0: Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or good night, but no one actually says good night as a form of greeting. Welcome to today's episode of Scientist Soundwaves from whenever and wherever you're listening to. Today we're here with Dr. Kyung Hyun Cho. Thank you for joining us, doctor.
1: Well, thanks for the invitation, and I'm very excited to be here.
0: So a little bit about Dr. Cho before we delve into this wondrous world of machine learning. Dr. Cho is an assistant professor at the Department of Computer Science, Kurant Institute of Mathematical Sciences, and the Center for Data Science in New York University.
2: He was also a part-time research scientist at Facebook for three years, and is also a former CAFAR, Israeli Global Scholar, and a CAFAR, Fellow of Learning and Machine and Brains.
0: So Dr. Cho, our first question serves to introduce the intimidating yet intriguing world of machine learning to our listeners. Do you mind beginning by explaining the difference between supervised and unsupervised machine learning algorithms and the various scenarios they may be used in?
1: Well, those are uh, very good questions, but at the same time, very difficult questions to answer. But I can start by talking a bit about machine learning. So when we try to solve some problem, we can imagine that the we often have to know how to solve those problems in advance. So let's say I want to be able to reorder numbers. So somebody is going to give me a sequence of numbers, and I need to reorder them so that they're going to be in the ascending order or the descending order. So it's the problem of sorting. Now, to solve the problem of sorting, I need to know how to solve this problem. So if I have to do it manually, I would look at the sequence of numbers, probably start by looking for the smallest number. I'm going to take that out, write it down here. And then after that, I go back, and then I try to find the next smallest number and then put next to the actual smallest number that I picked. and then you know, I continue on until I consume the entire sequence. Now, of course, if you have a computer in front of you, you can code up this procedure quite easily by simply writing down or choosing one of those bubble sort or whatever the sorting algorithms that uh, people have devised over the past, say, centuries or so and then just write it down in a few lines, and then suddenly you have a sorting algorithm. And that's how people, the humanity, has solved problems over the past centuries, or if not, let's say, tens of centuries. But, you know, what we realize is that there are a lot of problems that we want to solve that we don't know how to solve. So, for instance, self-driving car is one of those examples. We think we all know how to drive. Well, of course, the... uh, A lot of, many of the listeners here uh, of this podcast are probably not driving themselves yet, but in a few years, y'all will learn how to drive pretty well and pretty easily. It's not not difficult at all. But the interesting thing is that if I have to write down how I drive, it's actually impossible. I know how to drive. I drive whenever I need to, but I don't know how I'm actually driving myself. And what that means is that I don't know how to make a self-driving car myself by writing down the procedure by which this car can drive on its own in the cities or on the highways and whatnot. So then how do we actually tackle or address these problems for which we have no answers yet? It turned out that that's where machine learning comes in. What we are going to do is we're going to make an algorithm that's going to learn to solve these problems that we don't know how to solve themselves. And it turned out that uh, these algorithms can in fact solve a lot of problems that we don't even know how to solve ourselves, or we know how to solve it ourselves, just that we don't know how to write, it down, write down how we're solving it. And then you know, some of the examples include the self-driving car, uh, machine translation, speech recognition, or object detection from pictures and whatnot. And in doing so, there are different types of problems that we run into, one of which can be solved using so-called supervised learning and the other of which can be solved, or actually another of which can be solved with so-called unsupervised learning. In the case of supervised learning, uh, the problems that we can solve with supervised learning consists always of the input and associated correct output. So, In the case of sorting of numbers that we talked about, input is going to be a sequence of numbers or arbitrary sequence of numbers, and then we know what the correct outcome should be. It should be a sorted sequence of numbers. In the case of self driving car, the input is going to be the same picture or the camera input from the car, and then the correct output should be whether to hit the gas pedal or not, whether to tilt the steering wheel to the left or right. So these are the kind of problems that require or that can be solved with the supervisor now on the other hand, there are really a lot of problems where we don't know or there is no such thing as the output, we only have the inputs, what are those things. Uh, Let's imagine a problem where we're doing a data analysis. What we want to do is that we're going to collect all the data of all the countries in the world. And I want to figure out which countries are similar with each other. Now, in this case, there's no such thing as the correct, let's say, similarity. It's all about how we interpret the data and extract some kind of conclusion out of it. And then for doing so, unsupervised learning algorithms or the unsupervised learning is very adequate because it's going to simply try to uncover all the hidden regularities behind data that we have. So unsupervised learning is often used for the purpose of data analysis or extracting our so-called features of data without knowing what are the actual answer. Now, once we have all these features, we can combine this together with the supervised learning in order to solve the problem even better than before. So, this should be, I guess, the least technical way to explain these concepts from my perspective. And I can tell me whether it was uh, enough of a non technicality that I've stuck to or not.
2: Thank you so much. I think that was a great explanation. We're going to move on into the next question, if that's all right. So, moving more into uh, deep learning, uh, we find transformers, which are models used primarily in the fields of uh, natural language processing and computer vision. It is a key part of these fields, but I think that it's a very difficult concept to understand and to um, actually comprehend. So um, what is a simple way uh, of explaining how a transformer works?
1: Well, that's, oh yeah, this. so I can tell you that the I teach at New York University. I teach one course every semester, and then one of the courses that I teach every fall, in fact, I'm going to teach that course starting from this September, uh, is titled Deep Learning for Natural Language Processing. And then the best way to learn about what transformers are and then how they are used for natural language processing is to take my entire course. But obviously, we won't have the entire semester to talk about it here. So let me see if I can, I explain this in a way that is, that can be done in, let's say two minutes or so. Um, So transformers are latest form of so-called neural network or the net uh, artificial neural networks. So the idea of the artificial neural networks go very, very far back in time. So the, well, one of the oldest, let's say um, instantiation of the artificial neural net was called Perceptrons from nineteen fifties. Back then, it was the beginning of the computer science or the computers in general, right? So people had many different ideas. What is the right way to What is the right way to build a computer to start with? And then there were a group of people who thought that we have to build a computer to mimic how human brains work, because after all, just looking around, what is the most efficient and effective computing machine that we knew back then, well, it was humans, right? So it was, we are the best computers back then. We were the best computers back then, and then still we uh, continue to be the best computers you can imagine. So it was very natural for some people to decide to build the computers uh, inspired by how human brains work. And that's why you know the, uh, the, the whole concept of the artificial neural networks, or of course, it wasn't called artificial neural network back then, but various concepts that can now be referred to as an umbrella term called uh, artificial neural network. Now, what that means is that the artificial neural network is more of a kind of high level concept that groups many different ways in which we can build a computer or the machine learning systems. And then one of the latest, uh, let's say, such uh system that, is, that can be categorized into this umbrella term of the artificial neural network is called transformers. And then this transformer is quite special, and it was only proposed in, uh, let me see, in 2017 by a group of researchers at Google. And then Transformers are really fascinating in the sense that the, it really encapsulates all the important innovations, algorithmic innovations from machine learning over the past five to six years. Some of the innovations include so-called gating or the rigid connection. The details don't really matter that much. So I just you know throw down the, you know, these terminologies so that you know if you're interested in it, you can actually look it up as keywords. And then it also incorporates the idea of the so-called attention. It incorporates the idea of so-called normalization. And it also uses all those traditional concepts or the algorithms called stochastic gradient descent algorithm as well as the backpropagation. So all these things are the fundamental building blocks that people have built over the past, say, half a century or so in the field of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And then this transformer is kind of as it, at the pinnacle of our knowledge about these artificial neural networks. So it uses just the right set of algorithms or the primitive algorithms to build this large-scale artificial neural network. And then it actually does have a few interesting properties. It can work with the so-called variable-sized input. So when you think about uh, Language, language is a very nice example, is that the unlike pictures where you can simply zoom everything or the rescale everything to be the same size and that the content doesn't really change. In the case of language, every sentence is different in terms of their length. How many words you have in each sentence, it changes every time you say something or you speak something. So transformers, unlike many of the existing neural networks, can very seamlessly deal with this variable sized inputs such as natural language text or speech or video or whatnot. And then another thing that a transformer is set apart from many other neural networks is that it can really look at all possible combinations of the regularities or the features. Now this is really difficult to explain without any technical, let's say, content. However, what it says is that it it can look at the, it can incorporate the contextual information much better than before. So if you think about machine translation, many, many decades ago, how we built the machine translation system, or how we think we should build a machine translation system is to look at each word individually, or we're going to look at each phrase individually, and then trying to translate those small phrases or the words into the target language, let's say words or phrases, and then we just reorder them. What that means is that the when we translate individual words, we don't really take into account the larger context, the entire context in which that word was used. And then this actually does have an issue because many of the words or phrases have multiple meanings. And then you need to look at the entire context in order to identify precisely what the meaning of the phrase is in this context. For instance, uh, World Bank, it can be a financial institute, or it can be a river bank. And the only way to disambiguate these different meanings is to look at the larger context. But in the traditional ways to build many of the AI systems for the machine learning systems, that did not have the capacity or the capability to look into a larger context. But with a transformer, with the attention mechanism within it, we can now build a neural net that is able to look at the entire context before making a decision whether this bank is a riverbank or the bank is a financial institute. So these two major properties set transformers quite apart from the many of the existing approaches. And then that's the reason why it has become so called de facto standard standard in building a artificial neural networks in in recent years, as in like the during the past couple of years. And it's a very um very fascinating model and then you know, the uh, it actually has a lot of other favorable properties as well, but you yeah, know the going into those things will be a bit over. You know what we, uh, you know, what is expected from this podcast. So you all can actually take my courses when you all come to the NYU to become students here.
2: Thank you so much. Well, OpenAI recently released GPT three, another recursive language model that was uh, built using transformers and was trained mostly with few-shot approaches. It can generate amazing human-like text and it can be used to solve and aid in a wide range of tasks. Some deem it the future of AI. Do you agree? Why or why not?
1: Well, first of all, GPT-3 is already here, so... I wouldn't call it a future of AI, but the present of AI, right? I mean, it's already here. Why would we call it a future if it's already here? It exists in the present time. So in that sense, uh, I don't think it's the future, but that is the state of art in the the current state of the art in AI. Now, of course, when you think about GPT-3, uh, what GPT-3 does or how GPT-3 is trained or the GPT-3 learns to do is to given a text that has been written so far, it is trained to predict what is likely to, be, to follow this text, the next word. And then we often call it next word prediction or the next token prediction. And then this is purely based on what human has written so far. So it's going to use the vast amount of the written text off of the internet. And then this GPT-3, which is a massive neural network that is based on transformers. This will, re, this will be given some prefix of some text, and then it's going to be asked to predict the next word. And then if the next word prediction is correct, it's going to be left as it is. If the next word prediction, word they predicted was incorrect, it's going to told what is the right next word to predict. And then that's the only thing, really like the, the concept wise is very, very simple. And then once you train it, however, on a large enough data set, large enough corpus what happens is that it, it can very uh, easily predict what word should follow given a new text right new text that has never been written before it will still be able to predict what the most likely next word is going to be and then of course this new text could very well have been created by GPT-3 on its own so it's going to start from some empty string and then it's going to start by predicting what the first word should be given the first word it's going to predict what the next word, the second word should be. Given the first two words, it's going to predict what the third word should be. Now, what that means is that they can very well generate all those that say very natural text based on what what it has learned from them. This is a fascinating idea. This is great and everything, but it's not the future nor the, uh, the ultimate goal of AI. It still is very much limited by the fact that it was trained to mimic exactly what humans have done, human writers have done. Of course, the difference is that it's not just a single human writer, but it can be a group of human writers who have written all those texts on the internet over the many years, but still it is learning from exactly what people have written so far. So in that sense, it's still quite limited, but. It is much less limited than the existing, let's say, AI systems or the artificial neural nets that we have built, because we we train this on natural language. Language is a very powerful tool for communicating ideas, and then what that means is that we can frame a lot of things, that a lot of different problems, a lot of different ideas, using this single medium or the communication protocol that is called language. This is unlike many other let's say uh, communication channels or the communication protocols, they often can just encode a one particular problem in a one particular way. But by using natural language, GPT-3 can uh, read and then answer many of the questions or the problems that are not easy to frame into a one mode, but because we're using language now we can. So yes, it is a one step forward compared to the existing paradigms that we have stuck to, but it's just one step we have so many more steps we need to take in the future. So that, those, are the, those are the future. Yes.
0: Thank you for clearing up the limitations of GPT-3. I'm sure all of our listeners will be super interested about it. Mm-hmm. So now we wanted to go a little bit into the ethical side of AI. So it's often been known that hiring algorithms and facial rec- recognition technology in law enforcement often have embedded in them unknown biases. This is due to a lack of diverse data sets. Um, so this leads to fewer POC and women being hired, and more minorities being misclassified as criminals. So, Dr. Cho, how can we prevent this kind of discrimination by AI?
1: Oh yeah, that's a that's also a difficult question, and also I'm not really the expert in uh, in this field of let's say socially responsible AI or you know the AI and social biases. But obviously, you know this is a kind of thing that kind of haunts me a lot myself and then a lot of the other AI researchers as well, because what we are seeing is that the advances in machine learning or more generally artificial intelligence imply that all these techniques are being used increasingly more in real life, meaning that they are uh, having increasingly more impact on the people's lives and this impact can very well be positive, but also negative as well. And often the negative impact will leave a lasting, let's say, scar on the society, not only the individuals, and then we really have to make sure that when we deploy any of these engineer systems in the society, we really take into account short-term, mid-term, and long-term consequences into these deployment scenarios. Now, unfortunately, the many of the algorithms that we have built for machine learning or the artificial neural networks and the frameworks surrounding those algorithms, because algorithms don't exist in the vacuum. Algorithms work with the data that was collected, algorithms work with the data that was curated by someone, and the algorithm works in the society as a one small cog in a very large wheel. And then you know, algorithm is going to interact with other algorithms as well as people. So what that means is that, we have to really think about the, uh, we need to look at a big picture and then trying to figure out what are the possible, let's say points at which all these undesirable biases or the behaviors can creep in. And then what is the right, let's say points of, co- points at which we intervene to avoid these issues. And it turned out, unfortunately, that the, everything that we do so far in AI actually has some issues. And it's not only about where the data is collected, it's not only about how the data is filtered, or it's not only about how the data is prepared, but it's also about what kind of algorithm we use and how the algorithm was designed, and also how the algorithm is used as well. So I can uh, give you some examples there. It's actually an interesting thing to think about. So let's say uh, we had the perfect data, and then we're going to assume that there is no such thing as a social bias. So it's an idealized situation. We collected the data really, really well. But then what often happens is that these machine learning systems are trained because we make these algorithms learn from the training data or whatnot. So what it does is that we are going to train these machine learning systems to maximize the accuracy on the average case. So we want the average accuracy to be maximized. And then of course, the problems that we give to these systems are often very, very complicated. So these systems are not going to be perfect. So what that means is that these systems are going to make some mistakes. But on average, it looks really good. On average, it's going to be like 99% accurate. But then you start looking into, OK, what are the examples for which these systems are making more mistakes? and then. Once you look into that, you notice that the, the, uh, the examples or the cases for which this system makes mistakes often ends up being a minority, let's say, subpopulation. Now, what that means is that the, even though the data was perfect, just because the model or the algorithm has some limitation, and then we were simply, we we're blindly looking into maximizing the average accuracy, we were in kind of, let's say, unintentionally, let's say, disadvantaged, let's say, a minority subpopulation. So in a sense, as, as long as the algorithm is just not perfect, the algorithm has a chance to hurt some minority subpopulation, if not to create, let's say, disadvantaged subpopulation on its own. Another example I can give you is that the, let's say there was some social bias. And then let's just imagine this, uh, let's say one of the examples that I see a lot in machine transition systems is that the, these systems often have to hallucinate the gender, because many languages do have the gendered pronouns as well as the gender nouns and verbs. So let's say I'm going to translate from Korean, which doesn't have a gendered nouns or the gender pronouns generally, to let's say Spanish or German or Russian, which have a gender nouns and pronouns. Uh, it's going to always hallucinate and pick a very generic or the majority case. So for instance, doctors are always going to be gendered into male. And nurses are always going to be considered female, for instance, right? And then now let's think about how the society looks like. So, you know, why why would the model do that? Because in the society at the moment, about 80% of the doctors tend to be male. And then let's say 90% of nurses tend to be female. But the weird thing is that once we deploy the system that we learned, from such a data, so that it's going to predict that the 90% of time doctors are male, 10% of time, time doctors are female, what are, how are we going to use this system? We're going to simply say that the, every instance, that every prediction that this model makes, we're going to simply take the top one or the best answer. Regardless of whether our system tells us that there's a 90% chance that it's going to be a male, we're simply going to say, OK, 90%, that's higher than 10%, so the male. So it kind of amplifies this kind of, let's say, discrepancy further and further because we are going to how how we use is simply to use this in a deterministic way. So that's yet another example of how social biases can be amplified by these AI algorithms. And then you can actually come up with more and more examples that are either due to the data. You know, in the case of the in the case of data collection, then you idea how do we actually avoid that. There are issues with the algorithms. There are issues of how we use these algorithms. So yeah, so far it looks like we have problem at every possible stage between you know the data collection all the way to the deployment. So what is the right way to tackle this? That's an actively researched areas. And then more people need to spend their time and effort on you know identifying these problems and addressing these problems as well. Pretty horrible examples. I mean, there are even worse examples, but you know, let's not get to them.
2: <laughs> thank you so much. I think those examples were wonderful. And I think this will inspire a lot of people to maybe get into the field of AI and machine learning. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: That'll be great. Nice.
2: And thank you to the audience for listening in
0: to Dr. Kyung Hyun Cho's explanation on machine learning and the various niches that come with it. Please do tune in to the next Scientist Soundways episode. Until next time.